Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. was the time when Christianity was like the Taliban is today. Exactly, exactly. In fact, the last time I brought up the Inquisition, I was at a party and they said, the Taliban, they force people to be Muslims, they force people. I say, well, do you know anything about the Inquisition? Yeah. You know, Christians, they don't know how to come back from that. Yeah. Yeah. 
they will say, well, you know, they, they don't deny that people can misapply the teachings. Right. Right? That it's part of their belief that people are um, inherently sinful and will do bad things. But then, you know, my response to that when talking about things like the Inquisition is, so what you're telling me is people are so bad and your teachings are so um, unclear that for a period of 700 years throughout an entire continent, there could be practically nobody who was properly following those teachings. And you think you're still part of the same religion, even though it went through that 700-year period. Yeah. Right. And, and that's probably a better response than my one, which is to say that it's not a misapplication of the religion. It's the well, proper application if you read that. the book. The willful ignorance, especially of modern Christians, is uh, appalling. The only The only good thing is that yeah, we've dragged their religion kicking and screaming out of the dark ages and and made it a little more socially responsible and tolerable. Um, and, you know, okay, how much credit do they get for that? None. You know, I'm an atheist, but I guarantee you, if somebody came and knocked on my door and dragged me out into the street and said, uh, convert to Christianity or die, I would become a Christian so fast, yeah. they'd make me a saint. Hello again, and welcome to the Valkyrie Underground. Thank you so much for joining me, your host, Urban Jungle Girl, on the Might is Right Network at mightisright.net. Today is Moon Day, December the 8th, 2014. Between the live podcast, Might is Right streams 24 hours a day, some of the best white racialist material and music out there. Moon Day is the Valkyrie Underground. Tears Day is Berserker Bastion. Wooden's Day is the Strategy Session. Thor's Day is the Midas Right Power Hour. And sometimes Sunday is Open Lines. And I hope you like that clip. I put that in there because it's an intro to something that I will be getting to uh, in the first part of uh, my presentation tonight. And I'm going to be covering a number of things. But first, I wanted to talk about or present... Judeo-America, the Slayer of Europe, and this is a piece by Michael O'Meara, and it is on Yaki's America. It's not short, short, but it's not long, long, but I thought it was very good, so I'm going to present this to you. The Judeo-African cacophony, mesmerizing the jitterbugs on the dance floors of the 30s, was part of a larger program to debauch the conservative Christian rhythms of American life. Such, at least, was the argument Francis Parker Yockey made in his first published work, The Tragedy of Youth, 1939. In this early piece, full of promise and prefiguring aspects of his later critique of American life, the 22-year-old Yockey depicted an America whose youth had begun to keep step with the intonations and inflections of its Jewish bandmasters. Besides the folly of their un-European cavorting, Americans, he thought, were acting out the worldview of an alien-minded minority in control of the country's media and entertainment. Drinking, smoking, and other bad habits glamorized by Hollywood became, in this spirit, marks of sophistication. Sports were fetishized. Public opinion was shaped and reshaped to legitimate machinations of every sort. For the most educated, there were books and magazines promoting class war, racial equality, and anti-European, especially anti-German hatred, aimed at destroying, quote, whatever exclusiveness 
national feeling or racial instinct still part of the American people. Institutionalizing these subversions, Roosevelt's New Deal, the granddaddy of the present anti-white system, took on debts and obligations favoring the left forces, themselves puppets of the international financiers and bankers responsible for the deception and dissimulation and entrancing the jitterbugs. Against this backdrop of cultural distortion, usurious state policy and agitations favoring causes alien to American affairs, the country's youth, Yaki claimed, was being conditioned to fight as conscript in liberal Jewish and communist causes inimical to their national interests. Basic to Yaki's understanding of America was his belief that it was, at root, an integral and organic part of Europe. Whenever he spoke of the, quote, true America, as opposed to the America that had been taken over by the, quote, culture destroyers and became, quote, the enemy of Europe, it was the America that had organized as a European colony, the America whose culture was a branch of Europe's high culture, the America whose people still bore traces of the noble, heroic, and gothic character of their ancestors. Quote, All colonials, Jockey felt, have certain plane of their being which is susceptible to the centripetal attraction of the mother soil, for they share a common history with the parent organism, no matter how much the distorters might insist otherwise. The true American, i.e. the American whose highest loyalty was to his mother soil and father culture, thus instinctively isolated himself from all efforts to betray Europe, like French Canadians and South African Boers, who refused to be conscripted by Washington in the Jews' war against the Third Reich. Child of European, especially German, culture, Yaki alone among American and anti-liberals saw that America's origin has tied its destiny to that of Europe and that no matter how many cities the colony built, no matter how many millions of automobiles it turned out every season, no matter even how successful it was in reducing Europe to rubble and occupying it, no matter it, the colony, would never, not in a thousand years, surpass the achievement and destiny of its mother, soil, and father culture. Given their shallow culture and the dismissal of the tradition to which they were heirs, Americans were particularly vulnerable to the corrosion of 19th century rationalism and materialism. Relatedly, they were an easy mark for culture aliens, quote-unquote, for a world governed by money was a world indifferent to a man's qualities. Foremost among the culture aliens were the Jews, product of Spengler's, quote, magician, end quote, culture, instinctually hostile to the European spirit and bent on revenge. In their counting houses, Americans would invariably overlook the Jews' otherness, though they were of a different culture, nation, race. Even before the War of Independence, they treated Jews as Europeans, Jews who had been shunned, ghettoized, and seen by most Europeans as an evil to be avoided. Beginning in the 1880s, the Jews, those inassimilable aliens rejected by Europe's high culture, began their invasion of America. And as I've said before, the 1890 census magically disappeared in the United States uh, under the auspices of a great fire in the records-keeping hall. But anyway... By 1905, they were already a power evident in fact that the United States, for the first time in history, 
severed diplomatic relations with Russia on account of the, quote, anti-Jewish pogroms that had followed the Russo-Japanese War. Through its financial acumen and early control of media, the press, movies, radio, and in alliance with the native forces of decadence and degeneration, Jewish power in the New World grew at an unprecedented rate. In a country where, quote, mass thinking, mass ideals, and mass living prevails, end quote, Jewish propaganda in the form of advertising, fashion, and a hundred other things effortlessly reshaped the American consciousness, propelling the jitterbugs onto the dance floor of their world-conquering schemes. Stories of German sadism or Orson Welles' Mars invasion were peddled with similar success, just as the ethical syphilis of Hollywood and the spiritual leprosy of New York infiltrated the larger cultural body. In 1933, the year of the European Revolution, the Jews acquired outright political control of the United States, something that a thousand years of effort had failed to achieve in Europe. From this point forward, the formation of the Jewish-American symbiosis begins. Swarming into Washington, Jews and their sub-American contractors started dismantling the Jewish worldview and quote, bringing under control every factor of public expression. All who resisted were to be purged or ostracized. Then, as the country's racial instincts were worn down by the distorters, America, in accord with the policies of its liberal state and in the programming of its culture industry, assumed a Jewish countenance in its relations both with the rest of the world and with itself. For Yaki... Franklin Roosevelt, the monster who made of his life a study in infamy, was a creature of the Jews, just as his New Deal was bent on judifying American government and society, promoting as it did principles of tolerance and universal brotherhood, which were further developed by the Rockefeller-funded social engineers intent on morally disarming the American people. In this, the prescient Yaki might be criticized for confusing Jewish supremacy with the increasing Judaification of American society. For Jewish power in America was arguably not consolidated until the late 1960s, even if its secular low-church market in making money the ultimate standard had already Judaized American life and sentiments. That Roosevelt, in October 1937, began to maneuver the United States into the coming World War and that this war would be a war of annihilation, i.e., the sort of war fought between racially and culturally alien rather than related peoples sharing the same civilization, was further evidence in Yaki's eyes of Jewish hegemony and the Jews' genocidal hatred of Europe. Despite a certain exaggeration of Jewish power in this period, Yaki was nearly alone in seeing that the United States had become an anti-European power bound to the Jews' vengeful compulsion to suppress Europe's destiny. As long as America had been ruled by men of European stock, it remained a European colony. But the America distorted by the Revolution of 1933, a revolution carried out by the alleged Jewish-dominated New Deal, was now lost to Europe America's Jewified anti-Europeanism was especially evident in the Second World War and in its subsequent occupation of the continent. 
for the United States had possessed a proper ruling class, a tradition, it would have stayed out of the Second World War, which became a defeat not just for Germany but for all of Europe, and thus ultimately a defeat for the true America. Under its new Jewish-American regime, Washington, after 1933, was instrumental in preparing the way for another European civil war, a war it would wage as if the enemy, their European kinsmen, weren't human. Instead of being the great moral crusade against the absolute evil of fascism, the war in actuality represented a giant step toward the Judeo-plutocratic inauguration of a new world order based on American open markets and American economic practices. To this end, American bombers, supported by their British vassals, reduced every German city to a heap of rubble, intentionally targeting heavily populated working-class residences, that is, homes and families. Cities in France, Belgium, Holland, Italy, and Eastern Europe were also bombed, adding further hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties to U.S. kills. American fighter pilots similarly sought out civilians to machine gun and terrorize. Vast stores of equipment and armaments, often denied to American troops, were supplied to Soviet Russia to defend the communist state and encourage its penetration into the heart of Europe. And throughout this most barbaric and punitive war in the white man's history, the Washington regime talked incessantly of the enemy's, quote, war crimes and its, quote, inhumanity. Yaki blamed America's dishonorable conduct in the war on the culture distorters whose motivation derived from the deep and total organic irreconcilability between the high culture and a parasitic organism, though I suspect that the country's later-day Puritans, given their tendency to dehumanize the enemy, ought also to share a large part of the responsibility. Even after the guns were silenced, America's ghastly dishonor continued. With the Red Army occupying Eastern Europe and the U.S. Army Western Europe, the looting, raping, pillaging, and ethnic cleansing began. The Soviets plundered everything not bolted down. The greatest mass rape in Western history occurred in what became, quote, East Germany, and 16 million East European Germans were forced to abandon lands and homes that they had inhabited for centuries, two million of whom, mainly the very old and the very young, perished in the process. With greater discrimination, the Americans raided German patent offices, stealing their superior technology. They rounded up their rocket scientists, confiscated the libraries they hadn't burned, and made off with priceless artworks. German women, most on the verge of starvation, were not subject to mass rape, except by a black American and French African troops. But their favors could be had for a half a dozen eggs, some cigarettes, and a few chocolate bars. If this weren't enough, the culture distorters, whose fury had been heightened by the European Revolution of 1933, along with their American accomplices, especially the budding military-industrial complex, introduced large-scale starvation, abused POWs, several million of whom died as a consequence, hunted down anyone who failed to bow to the new conquerors, and imposed laws with ex post facto application. 
adding insult to injury, the American world clown and the sadistic Jew then endeavored to, quote, re-educate Europeans in the art of anti-fascism, mammon worship, and democracy, i.e. the corruptibility of the government by private wealth. The war for Yaki represented a categorical defeat for the true America and a total victory for the Jews over Western civilization. Since 1945, the two sides of the Atlantic have ceased to share the same inter-experience of feeling, for it was essentially a war against Europe. European Americans who supported it, Yaki contended, were traitors, inner enemies of their own culture. Then after being reduced to a beggar colony of America, Europe's pre-1945 elites were replaced by mickle elements, or liberal Philistines embodying the sum of European weakness to do the Jews' bidding. In the name of democracy, press rights and free speech were henceforth abrogated. Political parties were required to obtain licenses. Any expression of nationalism was criminalized just as all anti-liberal formations critical of the occupier's regime were driven to the political fringe. American Jewry, in this way, sought to sever Europe's roots, suppress her will to power, and deprive her of a sense of destiny. In no meaningful political sense did Europe, in fact, continue to exist after 1945, thanks almost entirely to this monstrous entity, with the Jewish head and the American body. America Jewry's anti-European vengeance was especially evident in comparison to its generous treatment of defeated Japan. Indeed, the entire non-white world was soon made to know that the United States had conquered Europe and that the colored outer revolt encouraged by the distorters was ready, at last, to triumph over its former white masters. More than Soviet communism, Yaki argued that Jewish-controlled America was, quote, the enemy of Europe. And this made America an enemy of, quote, true America. For the Jewish idea of America as a land of immigrants, creedal propositions, and universal brotherhood stripped it of any national spiritual significance it may once have had, doing so ultimately for the enslavement of the world by big business. Every European American loyal to his ancestral homeland, loyal to his own inmost being, was, Yaki concluded, duty-bound to be disloyal to what America had become, even as he struggled to return it to Europe. Yaki believed the 19th century age of materialism and rationalism, which had shaped America's cultureless civilization and opened the way to the culture destroyers, came to an end with the First World War in 1918 as a new age struggled to succeed it, a new age that would be animated by the same primordial sources that had brought about the European Revolution of 1933. If not for America's Jewry, Old Testament war on Europe, German-Prussian ethical socialism in rejection of liberalism's individualistic reign of quantity, would have inaugurated a new age of authority, discipline, and faith, bringing the whole world under Europe's influence. Instead, the very opposite occurred. But even though the America of the culture distorters had emerged victorious from the war, 
it changed not in the least the fact that America, this hypothesis of the 19th century rationalism and materialism born of liberalism, still represented the past, and the past, Yaki held, could never defeat the future, latent in Europe's high culture. The barbarian victory of America's 19th century capitalism over the Germans' ethical socialism had indeed already spread chaos and disorder throughout Western civilization, heightening the imperative for a revolutionary transformation. And that's the end of that piece. And I did uh, at one point read Yaki's Imperium, although it took me a long time. It's a hard book to get through. And I don't recall at that time, although I wasn't very racial at the time, and I wasn't also uh, so avid in my approach to uh, presenting the truth about Christianity. But I think that Jockey was a supporter in some way of uh, old Christian ideals or what, what he thought were those at the time. But anyway, I'm going to move on from that to another piece that I wanted to read a while ago. And I hope you enjoy this one. Jesus, the Jewish straw man worshipped as God. And this is by Yukon Jack. So, Jesus never returned to save America. He didn't and couldn't because he's a Jewish-created fiction. Americans are unable to deal with the current crisis because the primary myth keeps their minds in a state of suspension. They are unable to think and grasp their predicament. They cling to their myth of a savior return, more convinced than ever as things get worse. As America spirals in, as demonic politicians become ever more desperate for war, Americans will file into tens of thousands of churches and pray to their invisible Jewish straw man for salvation. They won't be saved, only killed off until whoever remains wakes up from the cultural trance and fights back. When Dorothy first meets the Scarecrow in the 1939 movie classic, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz, he is attached to a cross. America has been used up like a tired old whore. The jobs are gone and impoverished by debt and morally depleted by never-ending Jewish wars of aggression. The military-industrial complex, Jewish-owned and conglomerations of war and spy-making corporations has become a bloodthirsty beast seeking every kind of war on anyone about anything so that they can peddle vast arrays of high-tech smart bombs and snooping equipment. The latest act of aggression was headed off by the Internet. Once again, the Israeli lobby was unable to get America into a war with Iran. This is unacceptable. The war must go on. Trillions of dollars of debt must be propped up with empire expansion. This article, uh, by the way, was written in mid, yeah, mid-2013, yeah, mid so you might hear a bit of dated uh, references. But Are you ready for some hard talk about how the Jews took your government away from you? They trumped all of Christendom by using their biblical beliefs against them. Christians allowed Jews to fill every critical position of state and media until the Jews closed the deal on 9-11, pulled the political coup on the American state and launched a war of terror on the world. Now they are finishing their consolidation of power, building a huge internal police organization, the Department of Homeland Security, arming it with the latest weapons, and are getting ready to crush all Christian resistance in America and worldwide. Most Christians, completely brainwashed by their religion, have no idea what's up and are no more ready for the new Bolshevik crackdown than the Christian peasant of Stalin's Russia. 
Who is Jesus, really? Jesus is a fictional character created by Jewish writers under the auspices of Roman authorities, says a growing consensus of scholars. According to Joseph Atwell in his landmark book, Caesar's Messiah, the Roman Flavian dynasty is the sole creator of the Jewish myth produced by Jewish writers pressed into service of Rome, who took the Torah and other myths and created a new one tailored to a Jewish messianic audience. Christianity was originally targeted at Jews to convert them and make them docile, obedient slaves of Rome, according to Atwell. The new myth was carefully crafted by Josephus, using every resource available at that time. Christians dominate by stating their unprovable faith as fact. They often say, quote, Jesus is the Son of Man, a mimetic code programmed into their mind, a meaningless phrase that stuns the non-believer into eternal confusion because Christians also claim that Jesus is God. So which is it, God, man, or both? The Christian cares not because clear-cut definitions about their God don't matter. The entire exercise of making such statements is to embellish dominance until the non-believer tires and becomes one of the Christian Borg. If you debate these people using rational points of view, you will be disappointed. They counter rational arguments with pre-canned responses because Christianity is a virulent memeplex. A Christian is a human robot programmed with a set of memes no different than a computer uploaded with a program. They are trained to respond with a strong defense. If you say this, they will respond with that. They have a memorized reply to any challenge. Try it sometime. Christians always respond with automatic responses, and many times what comes out is off-topic. This is one of the reasons Christianity dominates once the virus takes hold of the infected. The infected is able to repel reasoned arguments. What they are doing is searching their data bank, looking for a response that matches. They remember one and state it. It matters not if it makes sense or even fits the topic being discussed. They look human, but they are robots. Don't take my word for it. Go test it. Their mind is automated like a computer. They are not reasoning like a human should, so it is impossible to argue with them because they are only trying to win the argument, even if their defense is irrational. Christianity is a mind virus that defends itself. Computers can be loaded with a program easily, but with humans it is more difficult. The difference is that the human brain has to be reloaded with the code again and again by the process of indoctrination. The memes must be drilled into the neural pathways by repetition. In the brain of the affected, the repetition of the code forms permanent neural pathways over time. A believer is wired to believe. Because of how the brain works, the code may be impossible to erase unless the victim uses their own will to fight the matrix memetic code and undo the damage of religious programming. Christians are literally hardwired with the Bible code. They are manifesting the so-called end times. They are predispositioned to vote for politicians that destroy civilization. Most Christians will mightily approve of George W. Bush. Undoing the damage of religious programming can take decades of soul-searching for the truth-seeker. 
yearning for intellectual freedom and individual bodily liberty from religious guilt complexes may result in destructive behavior as the infected tries anything to escape hell. Many join the military hoping for an easy way out, an honorable death on the battlefield. Christianity is a program of death for the human body, and many must go into wild mode to escape its cage. Many hippies are former Christians who reject the judgment, rules, and norms of the culture. They let their hair grow. Some even refuse to groom. They literally walk away from the program and go into voluntary poverty and start from scratch, being very careful with economic choices that are karmically loaded. Something inside prevents them from following the program of obedience. They reject the spell and walk away. They ask, Where was this food grown? Where were the clothes made? How does my act of purchasing this item affect others? The choices they are making become the new pattern for civilization when it grows out of the ashes of the previous. I don't really get that last part, but... A person cannot be free until every line of code that controls and restricts is confronted and rejected. There are hundreds of forums to help believers out of their predicament. Religious programming is the original psychological warfare, one that the CIA sought to emulate with the Jim Jones experiment. In the near future, humanity must address this issue and make it illegal to program children with any religion or political philosophy. Indoctrination is not a right. It is psychological abuse and many times accompanied by physical abuse. Christianity is a box in which the mind is put to rest. Once a victim of state aggression is fully programmed and indoctrinated in Christianity, they are no longer a threat to the state because they are no longer able to critically think about a non-authoritarian existence. A joyful Christian is a goy who has found acceptance as a slave on the Jewish plantation. They are able to perform small tasks while earning a living and paying the tax tribute as a good citizen. I have observed that many Christians are perfectly comfortable living their entire life without critical thinking. A Christian is a programmed robot with their mind deactivated. They are the sheeple, the easily led masses that can be manipulated into war by unscrupulous charlatans like Sean Hannity. A Christian obeys authority even if the authority is evil, corrupt, and criminally insane. Even with the blatantly evil politicians of the last several decades, Christians still are unable to detect evil. They are naive like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Why is this? Indoctrination. They are trained to support authority no matter what. This leads me to believe that Christians are under a Jewish black magic spell a spell so strong that Israel can blow up the World Trade Towers and Christians still support Israel and George Bush even when you patiently explain what really happened. I have done this many times and have been mystified by their blank stares and inability to grasp reality. Jesus is a straw man, not real like a scarecrow in a cornfield. Jesus is an illusion of a man being used for a purpose. He can't be proved as a real historical character, let alone as a god. 
If you doubt this man, you are an antichrist, someone to be feared and shunned. A real man cannot walk on water, but a fictional one can. Wikipedia says a straw man is a type of argument based on misrepresentation of an opponent's position. To, quote, attack a straw man, end quote, is to create the illusion of having refuted a proposition by replacing it with a superficially similar yet unequivalent proposition, like the straw man, and to refute it without ever having actually refuted the original position. Quote, why do anarchists hate roads, is an example of a straw man argument. Anarchists are against the state or central authority or any authority that collects taxes and imposes its will on a geographical area. They do not hate roads. They might use roads and even love roads. The anarchist understands that roads can be built by anyone, not just the state, but the statist wants monopoly power, the right of road building left exclusively to the state. So an irrational argument is forwarded by the defender the state's monopoly power because it can be effectively argued that the state shouldn't exclusively build roads. A good straw man argument not only misrepresents the opponent's position, it contains a strong emotional appeal to the defense of the myth. Have you ever heard a Christian say, quote, why do atheists hate God, end quote? That is a prime example of a fallacious, quote, straw man argument with strong emotional appeal. The theist defends his myth and turns the table on the antagonist, charging him with hate of God that the atheist doesn't even believe in. The dishonesty works well. Remember that Christianity is not about honesty, it is about power, the power of the state, and the myth that formed authority is granted by God must be defended. Without authority, there is no state. Without God, there is no authority. Without Christianity, there is no belief or defense of authority in Western civilization. The omnipotent state rides on the back of millions of believers. A statement refuting God should be countered by a reasoned defense related to the original string of logic, not an emotional response. Straw man usage proves that no defensive argument is available to the believer. Making emotionally charged exclamations a primary technique of how theists defend an unprovable God. It took myself decades to understand what was going on. I had made the assumption that Christians were honest and would debate honestly. They can't, because their case is unprovable and undefensible, so they must lie. They have no other choice but to lie. Only irrational arguments can defend fictional beings. There are no arguments that will prove the existence of their God, let alone all the other dogmas like devils, hell, and sin that goes along with their judging God. The idea behind the straw man is to use emotions to defeat reason, nip the criticism in the bud before any critical analysis starts in the awakening mind. If others are listening in on the debate, a believer might add to their logic fallacy, quote, why do atheists hate God and worship Satan, end quote. A fence-sitter might infer that all atheists are not only God-haters, but Satan-worshippers as well. 
Sometimes they even go farther and accuse the atheist of being Satan, because only Satan would deny the existence of God. What is really going on is that effective use of emotional pleas and a straw man arguments, keeping the myth alive in the minds of many. No one questions if Satan is any more real than God, but fictional characters used to defend the existence of each other. The Christian argument is always loaded with assumptions that the other myth, memes, are also factual. If you argue the existence of God with a Christian, you soon will have to deal with the unproved Satan meme. If you don't believe in God, then maybe you are a minion of Satan. They cannot accept that you are no thing of any deity, a free being, free of myth memes. If you deny Christ, the New Testament says you are an antichrist. Well, that is true, sort of. Just because someone doesn't believe in a god doesn't make them anti-god. Just because I don't believe him real doesn't make me hate him. Yet this is what nearly all theists assert when you argue against the existence of Jesus. Quote, you must really hate Jesus if you don't believe in him, end quote. Once again, the straw man argument is used by believers to defend the existence of Jesus because if in the last 2,000 years anyone produced a valid Jesus exists argument, then they would all use it instead. This straw man argument is now used to defend God even when you prove that the Bible God, a destroyer war God, cannot be the creator. So if an argument is leveled that proves the Bible God is a destroyer, the defender will twist the argument around and claim that you hate the creator. The Bible links the central war god character Jehovah with the creator in Genesis, even though the two are polar opposites. Why would the omnipotent creator destroy its creation? Every step of the way, the theist uses the straw man argument to cover their retreat. Politicians use the straw man argument routinely. For instance, someone critiques the latest national health care boondoggle and the administration defender claims the critics racially motivated for attacking Obama's policies. The racial argument makes no sense at all, but it sells well to the supporters of Obama because their minds are already predispositioned for an argument to defeat political opponents. Few people are thinking inside the Beltway. It is an spending spree or orgy of making laws and spending billions of other people's money. You might even be for national health care, but not Obamacare. Laws written by the health lobby being opposed to Obama's version of health doesn't make you a racist. Reason matters, not in power politics, only effective mudslinging. The criminal Jewish spy and propaganda organization, like the ADL, uses the anti-Semitic straw man over and over. They use it all the time because it works so well. Anyone who tries to debate or examine anything to do with Israel or Jewish racism is immediately attacked as a racist and labeled anti-Semitic. These techniques work and keep the vast majority of sheep in the herd and their minds from straying. The straw man arguments work so well because so many people are emotionally programmed and indoctrinated into the religious pattern of non-thinking. America is a Christian nation programmed by emotional codes. Thus, political henchmen like Abe Foxman can make short work out of steering them away from critical thinking on important issues such as the Holocaust, 
by using straw man type arguments. Most Jews aren't even Semitic, yet Abe Foxman uses the anti-Semitic straw man charge against anyone criticizing Jewish supremacists and Israeli political policies. If Jesus is a literary invention, how can he save you from your own acts? Are not your acts a fundamental part of the self? Aren't you defining yourself with your acts? The fundamental idea behind Christianity of salvation, now in this life or in the next, is patently false. Just because it sells doesn't make it true. Only a Jew would be so bold to sell you the idea that you are not responsible for what you are doing. But they did, and it was a successful ruse, because most people are irresponsible Not owning up to one's behavior is a fundamental aspect of Jewishness, and this Jewishness has crossed over into Christianity. The fundamental theme of Christianity is the absolution of sin and getting a free ticket to heaven regardless of what you do. Evangelists believe that you could murder a billion people and go to heaven so long as you profess Jesus Christ. The Jews have annual rituals to separate themselves from their acts, such as the Kul Nidra Oath. The tribe of thieves is playing a mind game with themselves. They are trying to violate the laws of nature. Theft without karma. Kul Nidra is a liar's game of fooling oneself with a ritual pre-absolvement. It takes no genius to figure out that this could be one of the primary reasons why Jews get into trouble with nations they occupy. The natives get upset with their guilt-free thieving. Many Jews are incredulous at why people hate them. Quote, I have stolen Palestine and killed your people. Why are you mad at me? And you are an anti-Semite. Kol Nidra is self-hypnosis. And I know some people really don't like whenever anything is mentioned about Palestine. I, I get that too. The Christian is just as incredulous with their act of voting for political monsters and the death and carnage that follows. They are completely divorced from what they are doing. Christians are Judaized Gentiles, Gentiles playing Jewish mind games of waging violence then denying responsibility. President Bush was fond of saying, quote, they hate our freedoms even though he knew full well that they were reacting to our interference and skullduggery. After leveling whole cities, the Judaized Gentile wonders why they hate us. There is a very deep level psychological sickness in Western culture, and it is the Judaic root. The Bible provides no physical description of Jesus. If the New Testament gospel writers were writing about a real person, they would have provided ample description of this man. But there is none, absolutely nothing about him because the writers all knew they were creating a mythological entity. Christianity must be sold like a car. The preacher is a friendly salesman selling junk. Take a look at the television preachers, just as slimy as used car salesmen pushing bubblegum repaired crap. They sell Jesus, Jesus this, Jesus that, Jesus did this, Jesus did that. Jesus can save you only if you believe. And who is this Jesus character? A Jewish man. And you must believe this Jewish man is God. What a laugh. You must believe that there was at least one good Jewish man, and he is your God. 
Jesus is a marionette being dangled by the rabbi in front of the deceived eyes of the goy. How can any TV preacher criticize Jewish supremacist politics when they are on the YouTube preaching Christianized Jewianity and when they are all closet religious supremacists themselves? If you are wondering why the world has gone to hell, then consider the possibility that all of the Christian dumb has made a fictional Jewish man their god. So how is it that Israel can rip off the United States to the point that Israel now runs the NSA? Jesus. Jesus is the miracle straw man of the Jews. With Jesus, anything is possible, including owning and controlling the world's most potent military. Who works for the NSA that allows this? Christians, Mormons, Catholics, all those spellbound by the memes. In the halls of the NSA walk meme bots of Christ defenders of the Jewish power structure, control freaks who give themselves moral permission to pry into everyone's business. Christianity is a mind virus that has infected the vast majority of people of the United States, and this is the primary reason this huge majority allows the Jews to destroy everything. Jewish supremacy has infected the mass mind, and the result is deadly. America, the world's only remaining superpower, is pounding the world into rubble with repeated wars in the Middle East. Millions and millions have died, tens of millions permanently displaced, and the criminals that direct this openly talk of more war. If modern scholars have cracked the code and determined that Jesus is a literary, fictional character, then he never was and cannot return. But millions upon millions of Christians right now are betting everything that Jesus is coming back any day. The majority of Christians believe we are in the end days, that this generation is the last. Many even await the rapture being taken up into heaven at some time during the tribulation. Many believe we are in the tribulation right now, but all Christians are still here. None have been taken away. How could they miss the play that their energy created? All Christians are going to experience the fruits of voting for warmongers by experiencing war on them right here in America. What goes around comes around. What energy you send abroad is the same energy that comes home to roost. The incredible part of the Jewish story is that when he comes back, he destroys the earth, but first he waits for wars, lots of wars that kill two-thirds of all Jews. Then he returns and finishes destroying whatever isn't already destroyed. Christians are very happy to sponsor Jews returning to Israel so that this can come true. Christians are joyous that so many Jews are returning home because prophecy is being fulfilled. Christians believe in Almighty God, an omnipotent God. If that's true, why are they so busy helping God return? Maybe that's evidence of their lack of faith in their all-powerful God who hasn't returned yet, but more likely it's a powerful evidence that the beliefs are a sham and that Christians are manifesting the end times, trying to make their prophecies come true. Americans think they are special, but they are not, and the rest of the world has caught on. The current exclusivity meme in use in the past couple of weeks is exceptionalism, American exceptionalism has been exposed as American badness. Truth about American behavior has been revealed. This is the definition of the word apocalypse. 
a prophetic unveiling in one's mind, the great unveiling of American behavior came about during the current Syrian crisis. America has been exposed as a bloodthirsty, warmongering, lawless, rogue state. American Christians think they are exceptional for being saved and living in the lap of luxury of Babylon, America. Little do they know their Jewish supremacist friends have robbed the nation blind with the Federal Reserve and the party is nearly over. Soon it will be lights out and those in charge are going into crackdown mode and will no longer tolerate the little people with their phony religion that was used to keep them blindfolded while the Jews took the wealth of North America as booty. Now they have it all, all the wealth and power. They will reveal themselves as gods. How can they resist? They must triumphantly show off their great success. And it is true, the Jews are the real gods if you worship the straw man Jesus because they invented him. Jesus is an invention of Jewish scholars in service to Rome. To this day, the Pope still wears a kippah because Christianity is a Jewish religion run by Jews and always has been. The Roman Empire morphed into the Holy Roman Empire and according to prophecy is nearing its end. It will end when it is exposed for what it is. America is an extension of Israel because Americans are seduced by Judaism. Christianity is a variant of Judaism. It is not separate. The Jews do bad things because their religion demands it. They must kill because their God demands it. If you are a Christian, then you are caught in the Jewish web of control and will do bad things also. America is a bad place because of this relationship. The people do bad things to others because they are following the Bible God which demands supremacy over others. Thus, America has bad people because those people follow a Jewish religion that makes them bad. How many Jews actually fight America's wars? Why do Americans fight to preserve Israel which attacks America on 9-11 and then subverts her with the phony terror war? America has fallen and the reason is the vast hold Christians have on this nation who continually vote naively for Jewish-controlled presidents and congressmen. Many Americans are like Dorothy from The Wizard of Oz on a journey to discover that the man behind the curtain is a rabbi pulling the levers of power. The end. This is the suburban headquarters of the Cornerstone Church, led by TV evangelist Pastor John Hagee. The Jewish people, and he ended up fish food in the Red Sea. The mega church boasts 18,000 members, and tonight, 5,000 of the faithful have crowded into the auditorium for what's dubbed a national night to honor Israel. Send a message to America. Send a message to the enemies of Israel. Send a message to the people of Israel. Israel, you are not alone. We are with you. Pastor Hagee is the founder of Christians United for Israel, which he hopes will become the Christian version of the powerful pro-Israel lobbying group APAC, the American-Israel Political Action Committee. Listen up, President of Iran. Don't threaten America. We're not afraid of you.
don't threaten the Christian Zionist of America. We are going to be your worst nightmare. The night to honor Israel is quite a show. There's singing, dancing, even an unlikely musical blend of Texas and Zion. It's all part of the preacher's grand plan, was as he explains to me in his office inside the Cornerstone Complex. Our purpose is not just to gather in various places and have what I call happy clappy events. We are going to go to Washington, D.C., from every state in the Union, from every congressional district in the Union, and speak to our senators and congressmen about our concerns for Israel and our support for the state of Israel. Why is Israel such an important cause? There are many important causes. You, you clearly have a real focus on Israel. Why? Israel is important to Bible-believing Christians because Israel is the focus of the Bible. Beginning from Genesis, running through the entirety of the Scripture, God says in Genesis 12 to bless the people of Israel. God says in Psalms 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, they shall prosper that love you. And this is uh, uh, a personal signature of Prime Minister uh, Menachem Begin. Uh, he was the first Prime Minister that I had the opportunity of meeting in Israel. I got to see him three times. Pastor Hagee first visited Israel in 1978 and has been back more than 20 times. On display in his office and adjoining library are records of his encounters with Middle Eastern leaders. This is a picture of myself and Ariel Sharon. This is at a very uh, critical time in his life. Pastor Hagee may be happy to talk endlessly about his support for Israel, but when it comes to U.S. policy in the Middle East, he's tired of talking. There's not going to be a peace plan in the Middle East until the terrorist organizations Hamas and Hezbollah that are funded uh, by Iran uh, and militarily supplied by Iran, until those organizations come up with a new constitution that calls for peace with Israel. Are you in favor of conflict in the Middle East? We are, we are encouraging Israel to have the opportunity to defend itself. The United States of America went to arms against Hitler because he was a madman whose purpose was the extermination of democracy. And the people around Israel have covenants that call for Israel's death and destruction. Therefore, Israel must have the military opportunity of defending itself. The Jewish lobby group APAC welcomes his support. For Pastor Hagee's followers, the crusade for Israel is a family-friendly affair. A three-day carnival in the sunshine. And merchandising for Israel, too. We'd hope to speak to some of those here about their support for the cause. But the pastor's people instructed us we could only interview church officials. Also on the site is an impressive communications setup. 
broadcasting Pastor Hagee across America and around the world. According to his website, he's seen weekly in an astonishing 99 million homes. Why are we having this briefing? Because America and the Western world are facing the greatest crisis in our history and many, many people are not aware that the crisis has even begun. Pastor Hagee is also the author of 10 bestsellers, most recently The Jerusalem Countdown. Some view his seeming enthusiasm for military action in the Middle East as an attempt to hasten Armageddon or the end of days. God is sovereign. God is going to do what God wants to do, when he wants to do it, if he wants to do it, like he wants to do it, when he wants to do it. What I do or what other people do is not going to influence him at all. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the second annual Washington-Israel Summit of Christians United for Israel. Since Christians United for Israel was formed in February 2006, there have been 60 national nights to honor Israel across North America. Now Pastor Hagee has brought the show to Washington, D.C., rallying his troops, more than 3,000 of them, for an assault on Capitol Hill. Divine order. We're going to Capitol Hill to visit the offices of every senator and congressman saying that for the first time in America's history, Christians and Jews are united. We are silent no more. And what is the message you want them to get? The message we want them to get is that there is, a, there is an enormous Christian uh, coalition in the United States of America consisting of all denominations but now for the first time first time in our nations completely organized and focused on one issue and that issue is Israel and that we want our government to be very very protective of this singular democracy in the Middle East so that it has every opportunity to survive Some high-profile political figures come along to show their support. Republican firebrand and possible presidential contender Newt Gingrich takes the opportunity to criticize the current U.S. administration. I don't remember any time in at least the last 27 years since Ronald Reagan was elected that we have seen the level of timidity, cowardice, intellectual dishonesty and determination to avoid the truth that currently dominates Capitol Hill. Presidential hopeful Republican Senator John McCain, whose continued backing of the Iraq war has cost him significant support, is happy to be amongst friends. The president of Iran has gone to the United Nations, to the United Nations and stated his nation's unalterable commitment to, the, to removing the state of Israel from the map. That is unacceptable behavior. We must confront Iran, and we, if we're going to solve this, if we're going to ensure, and the Iranians cannot, as our president has stated time after time, as our president, who I'm proud of, has stated time after time, has said, we will not allow Iran to acquire nuclear weapons. And that is, that is the end of the day, my friends. 
As it happens, the Christians United for Israel Washington Summit coincides with efforts by President George W. Bush to revive the Middle East peace process. More than five years ago, I became the first American president to call for the creation of a Palestinian state. In the Rose Garden, I said that Palestinians should not have to live in poverty and occupation. The president announces aid to the Palestinian government and calls for an international peace conference. With the proper foundation, we can soon begin serious negotiations toward the creation of a Palestinian state. While we will Pastor Hagee quickly voices his dismay. It is unfortunate that the president used the word occupation, a term that is often used by Israel's enemies. While many people of goodwill have hoped that trading land for peace might work, every concession by Israel has only led to advanced terrorism. In Washington, Palestine's ambassador to the U.S. has little time for Pastor Hagee. As a Palestinian diplomat, but mainly as a Palestinian Christian, all this phenomenon of right-wing Christianity, which is unconditionally supportive of Israel, whatever its appetite, territorial or otherwise, has been a major source of embarrassment for us, the Christians of the Holy Land. About 50,000 Christians live on the West Bank, mostly Greek Orthodox, Catholics and Protestants. They can't understand the American Christians who seem to deny them legitimacy. Those Christian pastors of that school of thought, totally insensitive to our ordeal, and supportive of our oppressor. How can they face the mirror when they are shaving in the morning and how will they face God, their creator, when and if they will meet him? When 50 million evangelical Bible-believing Christians unite with 5 million American Jews standing together on behalf of Israel, it is a match made in heaven. Pastor Hagee and his followers may feel an urgent need to use their numbers and their voting power to influence U.S. policy, but the fact is there is already strong bipartisan support for Israel in America. Nonetheless, the man is on a mission, and no one can deny that this polarizing figure sure knows how to fire up a crowd. When Hezbollah terrorists threaten to wipe out the state of Israel, we will not be silent. We will shout from every rooftop in this nation, never again, not on our watch. In the future, when the U.S. State Department presents a brain-dead plan to divide Jerusalem, our response will be, never again, not on our watch. God bless Israel, God bless America, and God bless each of you. All right.
right. Well, I hope you understand why I put that John Hagee piece in there. Uh, there were some things that I thought were pretty powerful pieces of information, like his broadcasts, uh, the numbers of people that he hits every week, uh, I guess in his weekly broadcast, 90 million people. And that's what we're dealing with, and that's what we're up against, and that's what I'm trying to counter. I hope that what I'm trying to do is uh, is helpful and um Hopefully it is. Well, anyway, I played the clip at the very beginning of the show about uh, the Inquisition, and I thought I might be running out of time, but I think I can cover this. So uh, I'm going to present this piece to you. It's the the history of Christian torture, mass murder, and destruction of human life. The Christian resolve to find the world evil and ugly has made the world evil and ugly. Friedrich Nietzsche. Today, the Christian church does not have the power it once had, yet we have witnessed the Christian abuses of children, child rape, molestation, and other vile acts that reveal the true nature of many Christians and the effects their God has upon his followers. The pedophilia scandals are just a small sample of what Christians are capable of. This is due to the evil energy they tie into This can be plainly seen in the Old Testament where the God of Christianity was a murderer and a liar from the beginning, quote-unquote. Years ago, when the Christian church had complete control over government, human life and spirit, we can see from the Inquisition just how sick these people are and just what lengths they will go to to get you to accept, quote-unquote, Jesus. Just as is seen in the numerous Christian abuses of children today, years ago with the Inquisition, girls as young as nine and boys as young as ten were tried for witchcraft. Children much younger were tortured to extract testimony against their parents. Children were then flogged while they watched their parents burn. The Inquisition was early communism. The Catholic Church was the NKVD and the KGB of the Middle or Dark Ages. And I actually hate the term Middle Ages. You know, okay, so what's the beginning age? And so what age are we in now? The end age? You know, it's just interesting. For more detailed information, read Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. The Inquisition and Communism, both Jewish programs, are both nearly identical systems of mass murder, torture, and enslaving the masses. Truth be known, nearly all of the inquisitors and high-ranking Catholic clergy were Jews. And there's a great book that I read called The Vicars of Christ. I can't remember the author's name, but he was a priest, and uh, it's a great book. It's a real eye-opener anyway. A documented case in the Silesian town of Nisi, reveals a huge oven was constructed which, over a 10-year period, more than a 1,000, quote, condemned witches, some as young as two years old, were roasted alive. Many victims were also extremely old, some in their 80s. This made no difference to the church. The Christian church murdered, tortured, mutilated, and destroyed millions and millions of lives, both directly through the Inquisition and indirectly through all of the wars they incited. The damage and destruction this foul religion has perpetrated against humanity is almost beyond comprehension. Most people aren't even aware of the facts. During the reign of the Roman Emperor Constantine, circa 306 to 337, the doctrines of the Christian Church were regarded as the foundation of law. 
heretics or persons who opposed church teachings or who were even accused of such were sought out, tortured, and eventually murdered. Heresy was an offense against the state as well as the church. For hundreds of years, civil rulers tried to stamp out all heresy. As early as Common Era 430, the church leaders declared heresy punishable by death. Before the Inquisition was fully underway, the church accepted heretics back into the fold under terms it considered reasonable. The following is is an example. For three Sundays, the heretic was stripped to the waist and whipped from the entrance of the town or village all the way to the church door. He or she was to permanently deny themselves meat, eggs, and cheese except on Easter, Pentecost, and Christmas, when they were to eat of them as a sign of their penance. For many days twice a year, they were to avoid fish, and for three days in each week, fish, wine, and oil fasting. They were to wear monastic vestments with a small cross sewn on each breast. They were to hear Mass daily. Seven times a day, they were to recite the canonical hours and in addition at Paternoster ten times each day and twenty times each night. They were to observe total abstinence from sex. Every month, they were to report to a priest who was to keep the heretic under close observation. They were to be segregated from the rest of the community. There is no precise date for the beginning of the Inquisition. Most sources agree it manifested during the first six years of the reign of the Catholic Pope Gregory IX, between 1227 and 1233. Common Era. Pope Gregory IX, who ruled from 1227 to 1241, is often referred to as, quote, the father of the Inquisition. The Inquisition was a campaign of torture, mutilation, mass murder, and destruction of human life perpetrated by Christians and their Jewish root. The Church increased in power until it had total control over human life, both secular and religious. The Vatican wasn't satisfied with the progress made by regional leaders in rooting out heresy. Pope Innocent III commissioned his own inquisitors who answered directly to him. Their authority was made official in the papal bull of March 25, 1199. Innocent declared, Quote, anyone who attempted to construe a personal view of God which conflicted with the church dogma must be burned without pity. End quote. In 1254, to ease the job of the inquisitors, Pope Innocent IV decreed that accusers could remain anonymous, preventing the victims from confronting them and defending themselves. Many churches had a chest where informants could slip written accusations against their neighbors. Three years later, he authorized and officially condoned torture as a method of extracting confessions of heresy. Victims were tortured in one room, and then if they confessed, they were led away from the chamber into another room to confess to the inquisitors. This way, it could be claimed the confessions were given without the use of force. The inquisitional law replaced common law. Instead of innocent until proven guilty, it was guilty until proven innocent. Inquisitors grew very rich, accepting bribes and fines from the wealthy, who paid to avoid being persecuted. The wealthy were prime targets for the church, who confiscated their property, land, and everything they had for generations. The Inquisition took over all of the victims' possessions upon accusation. There was very little, if any, chance of proving oneself innocent, 
So this is one way the Catholic Church grew very wealthy. Pope Innocent stated that since, quote, God, and quote, punished children for the sins of their parents, they had no right to be legal heirs to the property of their parents. Unless children came forth freely to denounce their parents, they were left penniless. Inquisitors even accused the dead of heresy, in some cases as much as 70 years after their death. They exhumed and burned the victims' bones and confiscated all property from their heirs, leaving them with nothing. The actions of the inquisitors had devastating effects on the economy that left entire communities totally impoverished, while the church glutted with wealth. They also crippled the economy by holding certain professions suspect. Inquisitors believed the printed word to be a threat to the church and interfered with the communication brought about by the invention of the printing press in the 15th century. Maps, cartographers, traveling merchants, and traders were all placed under intense suspicion, a threat to the church. Although the church had begun murdering people, it deemed heretics in the 4th century and again in 1022 at Orleans, papal statutes of 1231 insisted heretics suffer death by fire. Burning people to death prevented the spilling of blood. John 15:6. quote, If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered, and men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. End quote. The witch hunts, 1450 to 1750, were what R.H. Robbins called the shocking nightmare, the foulest crime, and deepest shame of Western civilization. In this 300-year period, the Church stepped up the mass murder and systematic torture of innocent human beings. Torturers were allowed as much time as they needed to torture their victims. Most courts demanded that prior to the torture, the victim be thoroughly shaved, claiming that any demon left undetected in the victim's body's hair might intervene to deaden the pain that the torturers inflicted or answer for the victim. Doctors would be in attendance if it seemed the victim might die from the torture. The victim would then be allowed to recover a little before more torture was applied. If the victim died during the torture, inquisitors claimed the devil intervened with the purpose of sparing the victim further pain, or preventing them from revealing his secrets. Those who fainted had vinegar poured into their nostrils to revive them. The victim's families were required under law to reimburse the courts for the cost of torture. Entire estates were seized by the church. Priests blessed the torture instruments prior to their being used. Certain devices were employed to inflict the maximum pain, indisputable evidence of the sick Christian mind and I'm going to talk about some of these devices. The Judas Cradle. The victim was pulled up by a rope or chain and then lowered to the point. The torturer controlled the pressure by attaching weights to the victim or rocking or raising and dropping the victim from various heights. The Brodequin, or the boots, were used to crush the legs by tightening the device by hand or using a mallet for knocking in the wedges to smash the bones until the bone marrow spurted out. People who passed out were further condemned as the losing of consciousness to be a trick from the devil in order to escape pain. Burning the feet. Oil, lard, and grease were applied to the feet before roasting them over a fire. A screen was used to control or increase the pain, 
as exposure to the fire was applied on and off for maximum suffering. Also, as a variation, some victims were forced to wear large leather or metal boots into which boiling water or molten lead were poured. Hanging and the strapado. The victim's hands were bound behind the back. They were then yanked up to the ceiling of the torture chamber by a pulley and a rope. Dislocation ensued. Christians preferred this method as it left no visible marks of torture. Heavy weights were often strapped to the victim to increase the pain and suffering. Uh, I don't know this word. Oh, squassation was a more extreme form of the torture. This method entailed strapping weights as much as hundreds of pounds, pulling limbs from their sockets. Following this, the Christian inquisitor would quickly release the rope so they would fall towards the floor. At the last second, the Christian inquisitor would again yank the rope. This dislocated virtually every bone in the victim's body. Four applications were considered enough to kill even the strongest of victims. Many were hung upside down as well until strangulation ensued. The heretic's fork. This device was used to silence the victim on the way to the burning stake so they could not reveal what had occurred in the torture chamber or defend themselves in any way. And this was tied around your neck. It had a prong on the top and a prong on the bottom, and it looks like it was about 12 inches long. The top prong went right under your uh, chin, and the bottom prong went right into that little depression that you have right there on your uh, neck, right by your collarbone, so that you couldn't talk. Ripping the flesh. Christian clergy delighted in the tearing and ripping of the flesh. The Catholic Church learned a human being could live until the skin was peeled down to the waist when skinned alive. Often the rippers were heated to red hot and used on women's breasts and in the genitalia of both sexes. The iron torture chair was studded with spikes. The victim was strapped in nude and a fire was lit beneath a chair. Heavy objects were also used. They were placed upon the victim to increase the pain of the spikes. Blows with mallets were also inflicted. Often, other torturous devices were applied with the chair, such as the flesh-ripping pincers and leg-crushing vices. Skull Crusher. This one speaks for itself. Christian clergy preferred this device because it did not leave visible marks. Unless the skull was completely crushed, which often happened. The rack. The rack, a.k.a. the ladder, was another device that was used extensively. The procedure was to place the nude or near-nude victim horizontally on the ladder or rack. Ropes were used to bind the arms and legs like a tourniquet. The knot could be steadily twisted to draw tight the ropes and stretch the victim to where the muscles and ligaments tore and bones broke. Often heavy objects were placed upon the victim to increase the pain. This was considered by the church to be, quote, one of the milder forms of torture. The wheel. The nude victim was stretched out lying face down on the ground or on the execution dock and his or her arms and legs spread and tied to stakes or iron rings. Wooden cross pieces were placed under the wrists, elbows, ankles, knees, and hips. 
the Inquisitor then smashed limb after limb and joint after joint, including the shoulders and hips, with the iron-tiered edge of a wheel, taking care not to bring about the death of the victim. There were splinters of smashed bones, blood spurted everywhere, and the victim's entire skeleton was crushed and smashed. Thereafter, the shattered limbs were braided into the spokes of the large wheel. The wheel has to be one of the most gruesome of all torture devices. The idea is that the victim's limbs were shattered and entwined around the spokes of the wheel, attaching them to it. The thumb screw was a device where the victim's thumbs were placed and systematically crushed. Similar devices were used on the toes. Thumb screws were often applied at the same time as the strapado and other torture devices to inflict more pain. The water torture. The victim was stripped and bound to a bench or table, and a funnel was inserted and pressed down into the throat. Water was poured into the funnel in jugs full with his or her nose being pinched, forcing him or her to swallow. After this was repeated enough times to where the victim's stomach was almost ready to burst, the bench or table was then tilted and the victim's head pointed to the floor. The water in the stomach put painful pressure on the victim's lungs and heart. There was not only the incredible pain with this, but also the feeling of suffocation. Inquisitors would also beat upon the stomach with mallets to the point of internal rupture. In another variation, the victim was forced to swallow large quantities of water together with lengths of knotted cord. The cords were then violently yanked from the victim's mouth, resulting in disemboweling. The Iron Maiden, also known as the Virgin Mary, covering the front side of this device was a statue of the Virgin Mary. Inside were spikes, sharp knives or nails. Levers would move the arms of the statue, crushing the victim against the knives and nails. Other devices and methods? Forced feeding of overly salted foods that resulted in extreme thirst and then the denial of water. Immersion in scalding water laced with lime. Yanking back and forth by two or more inquisitors with ropes attached to a spiked iron collar. This tore the flesh on the victim's neck. Variations used screws that could be tightened. The prayer stool. A spike board on which the victim was forced to kneel. Stocks which were fitted with iron spikes. Slowly roasting victims over fire. Walking a witch entailed forcing a victim to walk back and forth for days on end until completely exhausted. A variation of this was having the victim sit cross-legged upon a wooden stool, being deprived of movement or sleep. Some victims were as much as 80 years old. Thrawing, similar to the spiked iron collar, only a rope was tied tightly around the head and the victim was yanked back and forth. Turkus, this was a variation of pincers used to pull out fingernails. Many were thrown into filthy dungeons with no light or human contact, in addition often being chained or confined in the stocks. Scoring above the breast, the ancient belief that bleeding a witch above the mouth and nose would break a spell incited inquisitors to tear flesh, 
stick with needles and other instruments upon the victim's face. And well, I'll just read this last little piece about Galileo. Galileo Galilei, the famous Italian astronomer and physicist, was one of the most noted victims of the Inquisition. A letter in which he attempted to demonstrate the Copernican theory that the Earth is not the center of the universe was forwarded by some of his enemies to the Inquisition in Rome. He was tried in 1633 and found guilty of heresy. He was forced to recant, publicly withdraw his statement, and was sentenced to life imprisonment under house arrest. In 1979, Pope John Paul II declared that the Roman Catholic Church, quote, may have been mistaken in condemning him, end quote, and he established a commission to study the case. In 1993, the Catholic Church, quote, officially pardoned Galileo. In other words, they forgave him for teaching that the planets revolve around the sun, not the earth, 1993. And that's the end of my Inquisition piece. So, I'm trying to take away things and then I'm trying to give back. So, the true meaning of paganism. The word paganism has come to refer to various pre-Christian religions belonging to a number of ancient cultures, those from Greece, Rome, Egypt, Scandinavia, and so on. The truth about, quote, paganism, end quote, however, is that it is a historically inaccurate phrase in the context of these aforementioned faiths. Although it is now the accepted term for these religions, it is important to examine where the word truly came from and what it initially meant, allowing for a better, all-inclusive understanding of the world's religious past. The term paganism was revived during the Renaissance when writers were trying to differentiate the old traditions from their contemporary Christian faith. The term itself stems from the Latin paganus, translated loosely along the lines of, quote, country dweller, end quote, or rustic. Thus, it was initially a word describing a person of locality rather than a religion. However, because of its usage in ancient texts, medieval authors mistakenly believed it referenced a religious sect and thereby gave it the corresponding connotation. In actuality, there was a different word used to describe the quote, pagans, end quote, as they are called today. And that word, too, stemmed first and foremost from the location of the religious supporters. According to scholar Peter Brown of Princeton University, quote, Helene, H-E-L-L-E-N-E, end quote, was initially utilized in place of paganism. Helene was a reference to Hellas, the native ancient Greek name for what is now called Greece. Brown examines that when Christianity started making appearances in the Eastern communities, Helene was used to differentiate the non-Christians from the Christians. Those from Hellas tended to remain faithful to the old religions, but with the strife between Judaism and Christianity beginning, the Jewish faction needed to ensure they were not incorrectly associated with them. As they were not from Greece, Helene became the perfect title. In the Latin West, it was more common for the various religions to refer to themselves by their ethnic origins rather than by the gods. They simply referred to themselves in their own language as 
Romans, Greeks, Egyptians, etc., simultaneously insinuating their religious factions as well. This form of labeling was largely due to the fact that the political and religious aspects of life were a unified entity. Thus, the tradition of ethnic titling appears to have been continued by the early Christians. As far as ancient sources can tell, it wasn't until the late Roman Empire that the term quote-unquote pagan began to be used instead, as it was an easy way to lump all non-Christians together in conversation, decrees, etc. It rose to popularity as a matter of convenience rather than of accuracy and respect. It is important to note that paganism is not intended to differentiate the polytheistic religions from the monotheistic. The number of gods does not apply to the term because many so-called pagans would have not considered it important to differentiate themselves based on the number of gods Followers of the ancient religions did not necessarily have anything against Christianity based on its preference for a single deity. Many cults within each sect had a primary deity at the center of the religion. Paganism, as a title, was intended only to reference the non-Christians and the non-Jews, isolating them into one solitary category that could more easily be destroyed and replaced. This effort of combining all non-Christian religions under one umbrella was in fact a clever strategy by the early Christians to remove the pagan faiths altogether. Using the Norse traditions as an example, the Vikings of the early medieval period had no true name for their religious following. In truth, the word religion would have been an unknown, foreign term to them. The Nordic tribes preferred the word customs as, like the Greeks and Romans, their rituals, beliefs, and traditions were undefined and fluidly interpreted, orally passed down, rather than rigidly studied. There was no all-encompassing word for the belief in the Asir and Venir and the various other beings and deities, and there was no written text discussing their practices until the Christian author Snorri Sturluson wrote their mythology down in the 13th century. According to Gareth Williams in Viking Life and Legend, what is now considered the Norse religion is actually the, quote, legacy of the Christian missionaries, end quote. Their textual product, a, quote, concentrated target, end quote, that is much easier to remove and erase than the amalgamation of gods, consolidating the various North and every other pagan tradition into a simplified faith with recorded rules and codes provided the early Christians with a more straightforward target to remove and replace. Though the phrase paganism is widely used to describe followers of the various ancient religions, it is important to understand from where the term originates and the misconceptions behind its usage. Too many centuries have passed now. The word paganism will continue to label those supporters despite its original meaning. But it is never too late to be informed of the origins of the term, thereby allowing a better comprehension of the history of the ancient. And then I'm going to read a very, very short piece on what does the term Aryan mean? Aryan basically means someone of Aryan or European racial descent, that is, a, quote, white person. However, it also means and implies much more. It describes our Aryan character, our Aryan nature, and our Aryan culture. 
That is, the term Aryan describes what it means to be an Aryan, to have the character, the personality, the culture of an Aryan. This is the reason why we use the term Aryan instead of quote-unquote white. White refers just to the color of the skin. Aryan refers to our culture, our heritage, our character, our Aryan way of life. A true Aryan is much more than just a white person. A true Aryan is a white person who has an Aryan character, who has an Aryan soul. A true Aryan is a white person who behaves, who thinks, who lives like an Aryan. That is, in accord with our own Aryan traditions, our own Aryan heritage, our own Aryan way of life. A true Aryan is someone who upholds the noble, civilized values of honor, of loyalty, of duty to the folk, and who strives to live by these values. A true Aryan is thus a person who is fair, rational, tolerant, and just. A true Aryan is someone proud of his or her own race, proud of their Aryan culture, proud of their Aryan traditions, and proud of their Aryan way of life. What it is crucial for white people to understand is that the culture, the way of life of all Western societies, of all Western nations, is not Aryan. That is, our present societies are not Aryan societies. They do not respect, let alone uphold, the Aryan way of life, as they certainly are not strongholds of Aryan traditions and Aryan culture just as the quote-unquote laws and ethical values of these societies are not Aryan laws and not Aryan ethical values. Accordingly, most white people do not live in an Aryan way, just as the schools of these societies do not teach Aryan history, Aryan culture, and just as they never tell us to respect our own Aryan way of life, our own values, The truth is that our own governments do not allow we Aryans to live according to our own culture, our own Aryan way of life. Indeed, these governments have systematically outlawed our ancient traditions and our way of life. And that comes from uh, Resist.com in the war section. So, I'm done. Thank you for joining me, and uh, I bid you adieu. Rahoa. Bye-bye.
Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.